President Biden is said to be channeling Franklin Roosevelt, and that's a good thing. The question is, can Biden fulfill JFK's incomplete promise of a peace presidency? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. You've probably heard it said that President Biden is channeling Franklin Roosevelt. And as one who sees FDR as the greatest president of the 20th century, as the very personification of the essence of the Democratic Party's identity, and as a patriotic American, of course, I am thrilled at that. And I confess, hopeful. Are there things for which Roosevelt deserves criticism? Of course. It's very early in the Biden administration, and no doubt he will be subject to legitimate criticism as well. But my goodness, he's off to a good start. There are others who've entered the Oval Office one way, but as it often happens, it's not all that rare that the job makes the man or the woman, and they change the person after he or she's been in there for a while. For example, in the 1960 contest between Vice President Nixon and Senator John Kennedy, both were competing as to who was more aggressive toward the Soviets in the Cold War. It was, after all, John Kennedy who's credited with inventing the term missile gap in 1958 as part of the ongoing election campaign in which a primary plank of his rhetoric was that the Eisenhower administration was weak on defense. The entirely fictional story was that the Soviets were beating us in their ballistic missile arsenal. It was not at all true, but Kennedy won that famous TV debate in part because he was the more aggressive Cold Warrior than Nixon. Some say Kennedy tried to uh, channel the Rough Rider super macho tough guy image that Teddy Roosevelt created for himself, and it wasn't real. Then he became president. The context of the 1960 election was the Cold War, and the framing of that election seems to be back in 2021, thanks to what our guest today, Martin Halpern, calls the military-industrial intelligence complex, the war profiteers who have for so long exercised near-total dominance of American foreign policy, they've brought back the Cold War. It's so damn lucrative, after all. But after painful lessons Kennedy learned on the job, he changed direction. In a new article in the History News Network, Professor Halpern asks, can Biden fulfill JFK's incomplete promise of a peace presidency? Dr. Halpern, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. I'm good to be with you. Dr. Martin Halpern is Professor of History Emeritus. He taught for 25 years at Henderson State University in Arkansas until his retirement in 2015. He's the author of two books, UAW uh, Politics in the Cold War Era and Unions, 
Radicals and Democratic Presidents Seeking Social Change in the 20th Century. He's written numerous articles in scholarly journals and opinion pieces, as well for History News Network, Common Dreams, and for newspapers ranging from the Arkansas Democrat Gazette to the Japan Times. And I suspect he and I have been to some similar anti-war and civil rights movements through the years. He's a member of Historians for Peace and Democracy, the Labor and Working Class History Association, the Organization of American Historians, and the American Historical Association. In short, he knows his stuff. Again, thanks so much for being with us. And the March jobs report came out recently, and it showed that the economy added a whopping 916,000 jobs as recovery accelerates. FDR, of course, was also elected with a focus on economic recovery from what's now known as the Great Depression. Both men, FDR and Biden, focused laser-like. There was no such thing in 1933, of course, but they focused on getting people back to work. FDR had great success in that arena, and Biden is off to a promising start. Kennedy came to power in the midst of the Cold War, Russians under the bed. It was a frenzy. Biden has, as you write, studied the lessons of Franklin Roosevelt in clearly addressing unemployment, but you also suggest, quote, it would be wise for Biden and his advisors to study the lessons of the Kennedy administration when it comes to the Cold War, which, of course, is back in vogue. What changed for Kennedy between 1961, when he took office, and June 1963, when he gave the speech uh, we'll bring up later? What had been his relationship with Cuba and its sponsor, the Soviet Union, before the missile crisis in October 62? Well, before the missile crisis, uh, Kennedy was pursuing confrontation, um, confrontation with the Soviet Union, and of course, uh, Greenlighting attempts to overthrow the Cuban government, including by invasion. Um, mostly these um, efforts were um, not productive. Um, he had a very unsatisfactory uh, meeting with uh, um, Nikita Khrushchev in Vienna. And uh, apart from uh, one positive uh, development, that is, when lots of worry about going to war over Berlin, uh, the East Germans and the Soviets built the Berlin Wall, which tamped down on on the uh, movement of people out of East Germany and the degree to which tension was there. Kennedy at least said privately, a wall is a hell of a lot better than a war. Yeah. And so we didn't. He didn't challenge that. So while he was mostly confrontational, he avoided going to war over Berlin, which, you know, who knows could have happened and we wouldn't be here, I don't think. No, probably not. Interesting. Yeah, he certainly was the tough guy there. Then the Bay of Pigs invasion happened, as you say. He greenlighted it in April 61, very shortly after he became president. As the new kid, I can't help but think that the militaristic Cold Warriors, who had been there for a while, took advantage of his relying on them. They were the experts. Obviously, it proved to be disastrous. Then, not surprisingly, Castro sought to prevent any more assaults, and he put in missiles. From what I knew of Kennedy's background when the existence of the missiles became known, he exemplified the Teddy Roosevelt style, being the tough, strong, macho man. 
Luckily for the world, it appears Khrushchev backed down and removed the missiles, which I could see as uh, defensive, uh, you know, against another. They'd been invaded, after all. As a historian, what's your sense of what Kennedy learned from his confrontational relationship with the Soviets? Did it change him? And if so, in what ways? Well, I think it did change him, but uh, it's... It wasn't actually uh, Castro's idea. It was the Soviets' idea to, to put in the, the missiles, and uh, Castro did go along with it. Um, and when the United States learned that there were Soviets were uh, constructing um, missiles, um, Kennedy sought a public confrontation. He actually had a sit-down with uh, Soviet Foreign Minister Andrei Gromyko, after learning about the Soviets constructing the missiles, he didn't raise the topic with him and pursued diplomacy. Instead, as you know, he sought um, public confrontation um, with the quarantine, perhaps wanting to strengthen the Democrats' position in the upcoming midterm election. Mm-hmm. Not, I'm not sure what the, or just the psychology, as you said, he was aggressive in style. But I think he's um, he actually, during the crisis, uh, was uh, the most peace-minded of the people involved mm-hmm. in making decisions. That is, he saw himself as pursuing a middle course between the hawks who wanted to go in and take the missiles out, and we didn't even respond when a U-2 plane was shot down. Mm. And and pursuing uh, diplomacy, but um, and it's a, a bit um, misleading to say Khrushchev backed down. There was actually negotiations. That is, uh, the, we have to credit Khrushchev with not acting like JFK did in challenging the quarantine, and which would have, of course, led to bloodshed and a nuclear exchange in all likelihood. But when the Soviets made a an offer, the U.S. responded, and in the end, what you had was a negotiated agreement where the U.S. promised not to invade Cuba. The Soviets took out the missiles, and the U.S. also promised to remove uh, missiles uh, from Turkey. Yes. Of course, uh, the president was not frank with the public with what had happened, and it was only later that uh, this information came out. So it played as if the Soviets had backed down and uh, he had triumphed. But I think during the course of it, it you could really see that all, there's been lots of um, publications of the internal discussions and and meetings between the participants on both sides afterwards. It, it seems to me, and maybe I'm reading something into this because I'm a parent. He was a parent of young children. And I think he was in part thinking of, you know, the, the human element of what would happen if uh, there wasn't a diplomatic solution. So he uh, and Bobby helped uh, a bit to really uh, move the, the decision to a diplomatic resolution mm. against most of uh, the preference of his advisors. Oh, interesting. They must have been, uh, well, I suppose they must have been not real pleased about that, but we do. Well, they went along, you know, he was the president, he was a strong personality, and, uh, you know, and, but he was, he was the kind of person who did listen to people. So he listened, uh-huh. but he also 
um, was persuasive. So I think in the end, they were glad about uh, what had happened because they, they too could see, sure. you know, <laughs> survival was at stake. Yeah, kids, you know, we, we, we like our families, we do. Yeah, and- so I think that's what led him to move towards uh, a shift towards a, a negotiating the test ban treaty uh-huh. with the Soviets and the, uh, and the British uh, the next year and, uh, and other agreements as well, you know, putting through a hotline, you know. So when when he became president, uh, our our presence in Vietnam was very minimal. But when he assumed the presidency, how, did did he not see Vietnam as fitting into the Cold War framework? I mean, nobody knows what he may have done in a second term relative to our presence in in Vietnam. But how you say he was he was a really good listener. So what what do you think he was? learning about Vietnam and, you know, it's being painted into, framed as a Cold War issue, you know, us against the Russians. Well, he, um, uh, yes, of course, he, he saw it through a, a Cold War framework. Almost everything was looked at yeah. through a Cold War framework. Um, when he uh, met with Eisenhower and Eisenhower gave him, you know, his take on what the biggest conflicts were, it was Laos that uh, was on Eisenhower's mind. And I think you have to give Kennedy credit for um, going against the more aggressive types and realizing it would be a dumb place to uh, escalate. And uh, there was a negotiated settlement reached early in his uh, presidency right. in in Laos. I'd forgotten that. On Vietnam, yeah, on Vietnam, it's... You know, I think it's, I wouldn't say we had a limited involvement. We basically had undermined the Geneva Agreement of 1954 and prevented a a vote from taking place as required by Geneva and having a united Vietnam. And so the DM government that arose was uh, a creature of the United States, except the DM, you know, had, you know, a, a certain base of support among the, you know, particularly among, among uh, Catholics. Yes, yes. So Kennedy, Kennedy perceived himself as pursuing a, mid, a, a middle course in Vietnam, <sighs> much as like in the Cuba crisis. Um, so he increased substantially the number of advisors from a few hundred to 16,700 uh. at the time of his death. But refrain from introducing combat troops, right. although in truth the advisors were involved in murdering oh. people in combat. Uh, yeah. And but most crucially, I think his administration authorized uh, the assassination of oh, yes. um, South yeah. Vietnam President Ngo Dinh Diem because there was a political crisis of an uprising among the Buddhists. You know, not not right. just communists, but um, the masses of people on the countryside were already following the leadership of the National Liberation Front. Mm-hmm. So this was just uh, November 1st, three weeks before Kennedy yes. himself was assassinated. There is some wishful thinking that Kennedy uh, would not have pursued the course Johnson did and, and some exaggeration among Kennedy ad- admirers that uh, you know, that he had authorized the withdrawal of troops. You know, there's a line in 
in um, Stone's movie where he says, uh, you know, we're getting out. Um, but he doesn't point the, le- the the second sentence was, but I don't agree with those who say we should withdraw. So, I mean, while he did authorize the Pentagon to come up with a drawdown plan, that was all contingent on stabilizing the South Vietnamese government. So mm. he wasn't there yet to follow through on the peace orientation that I believe was exemplified in the test ban treaty with regard uh, to Vietnam. But, you know, even Johnson um, knew that the Vietnam War was not working out for the United States. He just did not have the political will to do what needed to be done. He was kind of trying towards the end, but, you know, he introduced this tremendous escalation of the war. Whether Kennedy would have done that, too, is... You know, nobody knows. Nobody knows. And, and uh, you know, of course, Johnson was about saving face. He didn't want to be, He said he wasn't going to be the first president to lose a war. So how many people died yeah, and lost it's, limbs? It's, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, what? it's like my, my cousin, who's a Marilyn Young guy, wrote a wonderful book on the war. He said, for Johnson, we, we, we stayed in the war uh, to um, prevent there to be a re- another Red Scare at home because he was so worried about being attacked as soft on communism uh, at home. So, uh, you know, the irony of uh, and stupidity of uh, killing uh, yeah. hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese people or millions, really. Yes. Oh, my God. Crazy. And here we are. And, and the Cold War is back in vogue. Cold War between Russia and more particularly China. It's just getting ramped up now by certain interests. And uh, if you just tuned in to uh, Keeping Democracy Alive, Bert Cohen here. Today we're discussing with uh, historian Martin Halpern uh, an article he wrote, Can Biden Fulfill JFK's Incomplete Promise of a Peace Presidency? He's, he's channeling it, FDR, but... Can he, you know, stand up to this Cold War uh, stuff that's going on? And your article looks at a speech President Kennedy gave to the graduates of the American University just five months before he was killed. In preparing for this interview, I, I watched and I listened to that speech. So let us not be blind to our differences, but let us also direct attention to our common interests and the means by which those differences can be resolved. And if we cannot end now our differences, at least we can help make the world safe for diversity. For in the final analysis, our most basic common link is that we all inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's futures. And we are all mortal. And as one who remembers JFK, it was very moving. It's not the usual picture of JFK, the Cold War. Here's the segment you quoted. Kennedy talked about making the world safe for diversity. Yet in 2021, we see the rise of fierce militaristic nationalism from the Trumpists who, and also others around the world. Is this lesson that Kennedy learned stronger or weaker today, do you think? Well, when Kennedy was speaking, there were just three centers of power in the world, the U.S. and its allies, uh, the Soviet Union and its allies, and the Nine Align Movement. Today, there are many more centers of power 
and many nations um, that are shifting their economic, social, and military ties with the bigger powers. You know, Europe is pursuing an independent right, course true. now. The Ru yes. Russia is another central power. China, you know, obviously growing the will soon be the biggest economy in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have uh, the uh, uh, India and Brazil, big, big countries that are pursuing their own policies and shifting. So if anything, um, we have uh, even more need for uh, listening to others uh -huh. and respe respecting diversity because it's so much more complicated today. Yes, it is. It was complicated then, but it's more so today for sure. And today Biden is being pushed to reassert standing tough against not just the Russians, but the Chinese as well. Biden declared, the world does not organize itself. That phrase amazed me. <laughs> and it goes against what we, you and I were just talking about. At least for domestic consumption, Biden seems to be a far cry from what JFK learned. He and Secretary of State Blinken often reiterate that the U.S. must be at the head of the table, leading from a position of strength. Then again, in his speech to the State Department, Blinken said, we will not promote democracy through costly interventions or by attempting to overthrow authoritarian regimes. By force, we have tried these tactics in the past, however well-intentioned, they haven't worked. They've given democracy promotion a bad name, and they've lost the confidence of the American people. We will do things differently. So it sounds sort of like he's trying to walk a middle line, too. You know, he still emphasizes, quote, the need to engage China from a position of strength. That sounds to me a lot like pre-1963 insistence on U.S. hegemony over the world. Your thoughts on that? The push for U.S. hegemony appears to be continuous since about 1944. So, you know, it originated in the closing a year or two of, of World War II when establishment of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. And, um, there were, were, have been occasions when there were tentative shifts away from confrontation and um, with perceived adversaries to detente. The Caspian Treaty under JFK, the Treaty on Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons under LBJ, the Salt Treaty under Nixon, the INF Treaty under Reagan, and mm. the START Treaty under Obama. Mm. And so I, I think there are a couple of things that uh, that uh, Biden has done that uh, led me to write um, yes. my, my essay with uh, his harsh rhetoric against uh, Russia, um, a, a couple of uh, bombing raids, but there are a few things he's done that have been uh, positive. You know, there haven't been any drone strikes uh, mm -hmm. under under Biden. Uh, he suspended assistance to the Saudi-led war in, in yes. Yemen. That's he's great. reversed Trump's policies on immigration, on building the wall, on the Remain in Mexico program. Uh, so, I mean, it, it, there are some positive things in that have been happening in Biden's foreign policy. But I think you're right that uh, the idea of leading from strength and not letting China become number one because we have to be number one right. is, is, is part of his, his, uh, his thinking that uh, really needs to, in my view, uh, needs to change if we're going to live a better life. 
Yeah, that whole attitude for domestic consumption, looking tough, American exceptionalism. Come on, people, enough already. That's just my opinion. And as you write, there has long been, quote, an attempt to maintain U.S. dominance with outsized U.S. military spending, which has led to a sense of endless, unsuccessful wars. Do you sense that the Biden administration gets this? Is there any evidence of this understanding? Or is the domestically driven desire to dominate the world more powerful than that understanding of historical reality? Seems like there's sort of a push-pull. Well, um, the military spending is, is very much part of our political life. And um, on the other hand, Biden has said he wants to end the endless wars. And uh, he, he has shown some signs that a, a shift is in direction is necessary, but it's, it's, it's limited and it's vague and a lot more uh, needs to be done. It's just, you know, these wars have just bled the United States, caused untold harm around the world, caused a blowback. And uh, this structure that we have in place uh, of enormous military spending, so much more than, than everyone else, Yet we don't have a national health care system that we, we have so many impoverished people. We have so many homeless people. And, you know, it's, of course, not just military spending. It's also um, the, the enormous inequality between the corporate corporations and the rich and, and the rest of us. Yeah. But military spending is a big part of it. You know, the Poor People's Campaign has called for 50 percent reduction in military spending. The Progressive Caucus in in the, the House proposed a 10% reduction. So I'm with the Poor People's Campaign and uh -huh. and certainly the spending on nuclear weapons, you know, <laughs> the, the, for example, the, the, there's so much waste with buying nuclear, buying weapons that don't even work. Right. And the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile Program it's totally unnecessary now. We have all these submarines that are much um, less vulnerable. And of course, what we need to do is return to the concept in Kennedy's speech of uh, disarmament, getting rid of nuclear weapons entirely. There was uh, a, a great film about 40 years ago about a president who, who did that and starting with a, a child composing it and it just spreading of everybody boycotting until a president finally realized, yes, we have to do that. Of course, it hasn't happened, but yeah. I, I think, you know, it, it's it's necessary if we're going live, uh, to live through another 100 years. We, we've just got to get rid of these weapons. Yeah, if he's spending all that money on to maintain obsolete weapons, it's just, it's, it's amazing. But there's that political push for it. And, and I think a, not just Biden, but virtually every politician, Democrat and Republican, is, is very reluctant to, to not look tough, you know, in the Cold War kind of thing. It's just, and it's kind of nuts, I think. But I, I wonder about in terms of percentage of federal spending, I wonder if the military portion of federal spending was higher in Kennedy's time or now. I don't know. Go ahead. It, well, it's it's military spending 
uh, takes up over 50% of the discretionary spending in the federal budget. And in constant dollars, um, we're spending more today than we, we were during the Cold War. You know, we spent more during World War II than any other time. But sure. after World War II, uh, there's a spike with the Korean War. And then after the Korean War, it comes down but doesn't return to the pre-Korean mm-hmm. War level. Then there's another spike with the Vietnam War. It comes down, but then, you know, it's, it's higher than the, the pre-Vietnam War. And then after with the, the next cycle of Reagan's buildup, it comes down after the success of negotiations, but uh, not, not you know, never goes back to those pre-Korean War levels. And then we, there's another enormous spike with the wars in Afghanistan and, uh, and Iraq and the so-called war on terror. Mm. And it's come down a little from then, but it's still but far that- higher than it was uh, during the Kennedy administration. And Johnson... Of course. I, I think, if not for Vietnam, he might be, I think he probably would be remembered as a great president. He admired uh, FDR, but he kind of let the, Viet, the war in Vietnam dominate his attention. As you point out, quote, we need to shift funding from the military budget to social needs. To accomplish the latter goal means emphasizing peace advocacy, end of quote. Kennedy's speech referred to this and talked about the political difficulty of doing this. I realize the pursuit of peace is not as dramatic as the pursuit of war, and frequently the words of the pursuers fall on deaf ears, but we have no more urgent task. Some say that it is useless to speak of peace or world law or world disarmament. I also believe that we must re-examine our own attitudes as individuals and as a nation, for our attitude is as essential as theirs. In reference to what JFK just said, in 2021 America, 2021 America, it does seem that Biden is in a tough spot. Your thoughts uh, about can what Kennedy learned be sold to the American public today, that we need to be advocating for peace? Can it be sold? I I don't think the public is the problem. I mean, part of the reason military spending remains so high is, you know, Congress votes for it. But that has a lot to do with corporate lobbying. So many corporations at, uh, you know, at the trough. Uh, But you're right. There's a political difficulty um, in that the Democrats have been Russia bashing for the past four years. Trump and the Republicans and to less or lesser extent, the Democrats have been China bashing. On the other hand, I think politically Biden would gain if he reversed course on both of these. Recall how Reagan, who came to office Russia bashing or Soviet bashing, reversed course and reached important agreements uh, with uh, the Soviet Union. That was very popular. Of course, Reagan was responding both to Soviet initiatives and to mass peace movements in the U.S. and right. Europe. I don't know if yeah. you were there, but in 1982, oh, yeah. I was in New York for the nuclear freeze demonstration, over a million people, the largest demonstration. I was the there. I was there. The country to, to <laughs> that time. And so that's what led, you know, in, in, in Europe, yeah, anybody who would take the missiles that Reagan wanted to put in, 
where those governments would have uh, been defeated by their peoples. True. So peace is actually popular uh, in response to Biden's anti-Putin rhetoric, 27 peace and progressive organizations, including uh, historians for peace and democracy, have Mm -hmm. urged Biden to cease such reckless rhetoric and to instead uh, vigorously pursue nuclear arms negotiations with the Russian government. Uh, The Russian press has given extensive coverage to our statement indicating a desire for co- cooperation by the Russians. And I, I do have to get, give Brighton credit because he is saying he wants to start the negotiations, but he needs uh-huh. to tamp down on the aggressive rhetoric as well, as well as stop these bombings and so on. Just has to recognize that, yes, that the public does want peace. And I think the some of the powers that be have convinced us, the public, that we can't make any changes, that we're powerless. It is so not true. It's worked before, it can work again. And we just, uh, we, we need to, to get that. For those who may have just tuned in, Burt Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about, uh, well, keeping the world alive uh, with our uh, guest today, Professor Martin Halpern, who uh, has written an article in History News Network, Can Biden Fulfill JFK's Incomplete Promise of a Peace presidency can there be a peace presidency and and you urge in the article that biden quote step back from his attack on russian president vladimir putin many americans are quite angry that putin worked to undermine the american election in 2016 and put his buddy trump in the white house you suggest that quote biden should remember that the u.s intervened openly in the 1996 russian election helped overthrow the elected Ukraine government in 2014 and has a long record of interfering in other countries' internal affairs. And it's also true that Russia has been invaded through Ukraine and that Crimea has been traditionally allied with Russia and part of Russia. The U.S. sees Putin's Russia as a bad guy and China too. But the rest of the world, what, what do they see of these two guys, the Russians and the Chinese? Well, there are, as I mentioned before, there are multiple centers of power in the world now and multiple points of view. Um, Some follow the U.S., but I think uh, most nations don't. Um, There's a new economic grouping of four large countries, uh, BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Uh, China's provided significant aid uh, building infrastructure in Latin America and Africa and Asia. Both Russia and China are providing vaccines to other countries, something the U.S. is is waiting to, has promised to do. But even though we have enough vaccine to vaccinate everyone in the United States five times over, we're waiting um, to uh, help other countries. Um, A a hangover from uh, Trump's Trump's, uh, go-it-alone approach. So I think uh, there are diverse views and a, a lot of uh, welcome to uh, support. China's giving a building infrastructure instead of exploiting yes. other countries. And, and they established a, a, a bank. There's a Chinese bank that's giving a lot of aid and uh, supporting sustainability. And there's a, uh, another bank that's uh, a joint enterprise. So there are alternatives now to the World Bank and the IMF, and even the World Bank and the IMF have been uh, changing a bit. 
Oh, that's interesting. We, st- we, well, one thing I often say is that uh, one thing that I've learned from history is that we never learn from history, and that is changing. That's fascinating. The IMF and the World Bank don't have the same sort of dictatorial power that they've gotten used to. What about the intelligence community in America? Very powerful, I think. I mean, it was, after all, it was the intelligence community that got JFK to approve the invasion of the Bay of Pigs. In 2021, you say the so-called intelligence community, I like that phrase, so-called intelligence community, is part of the larger complex and is seeking to consolidate the new Cold War with both Russia and China. What, what leads you to say that? Well, all the newspaper accounts that I read that cite intelligence reports and analyses make it seem as if Russia and China are threats to U.S. interests. Um, the implication is that confrontation and spending enormous sums on the military and intelligence agencies are necessary for a national security. It's basically, you know, a, a big uh, consuming enterprise. It's a we spend $70 billion a year on intelligence. There are 5 million employees. Uh, so it's just this, um, like, a animal that keeps growing and it feeds, feeds on, on fear. And uh, so it wants to promote fear rather than, you know, I'm not saying that sometimes they don't uh, try to balance the fear with uh, a, a little reason, but for the most part, it's it's in the game of, of scaring us and uh, feeding to the press uh, information, unsourced information you uh, know, the, on uh, that Russia and China are trying to do uh, terrible things to us. With you know, you wonder really what's uh, what the truth is when they never. And they never give the the basis on which they come to their conclusions. They just give you their conclusions. Uh, well, as we all know, fear is so powerful. Uh, many, many years ago, uh, there was a, uh, a Unitarian minister uh, in town who said, who said to me, Bert, you know, there's only two things that move people in politics, fear and reassurance. And I think he's right, unfortunately. And, you know, we talk about looking tough People want to feel secure. They want the nation to be secure. And our definition of national security seems to just quickly flip to more money, more spending for the military. And meanwhile, our real national security, people's education and, you know, the, the democracy is in trouble when there's a few incredibly rich people and a lot of people who, you know, don't have any money. But that's what we're doing. And... Kennedy, of course, had his dust up, shall we say, with Cuba. And since then, there's been a a U.S. blockade ever since then. And as you note, Obama took a step toward its relaxation. uh, And of course, uh, Trump did not like that and went, you know, did what he could to crush that relaxation. The Soviet Union is no more. Castro is long dead. Do you see any indication that President Biden may stand up to the powerful right-wing Cuban exile community. I mean, after all, it is about politics, making uh, uh, foreign policy decisions. Do you see any indication that Biden might stand up to that community? They're pretty powerful. Well, you know, the the Cuban-Americans are much more diverse today than they were in, in Kennedy's day. 
Uh, there are Cuban-American Democrats. There are Cuban-Americans who were very supportive of uh, Obama's uh, initiative and uh, getting to you know send funds, uh, visiting home, and so on. So um, I, I think it's more cold warriors rather than the Cuban-American exile community ah. that's uh, responsible for the continuing uh, blockade. Oh, and uh, on the one hand, you, you can give Obama some credit for the initiative he took, but it wasn't right. It wasn't all the way to accepting diversity. It was well, we'll open, put our foot in the door, and then we'll change them. You know, he was still thinking that way. And so we, we need an immediate end to the blockade. There's a, you know, quite a big worldwide movement to end the, the unjust and illegal blockade of Cuba. And I, I think there's a, a chance that, uh, uh, that Biden uh, will likely move in that direction especially because this grassroots movement in that direction is growing just as there was that movement during the, the war against the Sandinistas, um, the sanctuary movement and so on that, that helped to move the public opinion and eventually government policy, the movement in sympathy with uh, the people of South Africa that led eventually right. to the end of apartheid. Those all started as grassroots movements with support from institutions then and members of Congress. So even something as longstanding as the terrible blockade of Cuba uh, is, is something that can and will uh, come to an end. Boy, I hope so. It hasn't made sense for a long time. And I don't think people have paid a lot of attention or given much thought. I mean, this 24-7 news cycle is just like a fire hose of information coming at us all the time. And there's not much about Cuba. But one thing that people are aware of that was a big aspect of the Kennedy presidency was his push for civil rights. And this George Floyd moment goes on and on as it should, as it has to. In terms of civil rights, I wonder how might Biden continue to push for Kennedy's vision on this? Talk more about that, please. Well, I think you're right. This is a moment in which we need to uh, unitedly work to restore voting rights. It's going to take a lot of uh, a lot of work by all of us to reach out uh, across political and racial divisions. Um, it means taking seriously the 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 concept of defunding the police. It means. Uh, Focusing policies on solving such um, problems as uh, poverty, homelessness, lack of health care, um, getting vaccinations into um, the communities of color, uh, all of you know, putting priority on the neediest people. And through the infrastructure projects he's promoting, I think that ah, yes. a vision yes. like that is is part of where where Biden is headed. But it means listening to uh, the the voices of African American and uh, uh, Mexican American and Asian American leaders, and um, giving leadership to that, using the bully pup like Kennedy eventually did, mm. you know, one one day after the American University speech, he gave a speech to the nation 
on civil rights and um, helped start uh, pushing forward what eventually became the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So he'd, he'd been s- slow, but then he, uh-huh. he really got, got it right at the same time uh, that he was uh, promoting uh, peace. And in, in his speech at American University, that he tied the two together, peace and uh, civil rights, peace and justice. And that's true with the issue of worldwide peace. It's about uh, helping uh, the world south, helping the poorest countries, helping Africa, um, getting uh, uh, the vaccines to African nations immediately as, you know, the French have taken leadership and saying, let's let's send 5% of, of our vaccines to African nations. The U.S. hasn't done that as mm. yet. Mm. Um, so it, it means um, seeing the problem and taking action. And um, of course, Biden has a mixed record on issues of civil rights but but he's also you know he's human and he's 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 been learning and let's hope he can learn more we have more african-americans in leadership positions today by far than in kennedy's day there are more people to listen to true they were pretty invisible up at the time and uh, of course it was johnson who actually managed to push through i mean kennedy's uh, civil rights proposals got a lot of resistance but then uh, less resistance as time went on. History can change things, actually. For, again, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking with uh, Professor Martin Halpern about his article, Can Biden Fulfill JFK's Incomplete Promise of a Peace Presidency? Again, he's certainly been channeling FDR in terms of economic things, and maybe he's uh, paying attention to, uh, to Kennedy. He's certainly got a lot on his plate. And after going back a long time to the uh, so-called Civil War, after Lincoln understood the incredible destruction and devastation that the war against Southern independence, once he understood what that was, he seemed to be a changed man. In his speech, famous speech calling for malice toward none and charity for all as a way to start the healing. Of course, the presidents that followed after his assassination... Lincoln's assassination ignored that call. And when I listened to JFK's June 1963 American University speech, it struck me that he too seemed to be a changed man, as Lincoln was, calling for disarmament. And as you point out, he called for making the United Nations a more effective instrument for peace. And today, right-wing nationalists despise the United Nations, as the Birch Society did, very much so in Kennedy's time. What what could Biden learn from Kennedy about this? The Birch, you know, the right wing, get the UN out of the U.S. and the UN, U.S. out of the UN, that kind of stuff. What could Biden learn from Kennedy about this particular subject? Well, Biden has already reversed Trump's antagonistic approach to the UN. Yay. Um, <laughs> you know, he's he's uh, re- re-engaged with the World Health Organization. He's uh, um, moved to join the, the COVID-19 vaccine global access facility. Um, so on the one hand, he's, he's uh, doing things to re-engage with the UN in important ways. But 
supporting the UN today is more complex and also more important than Kennedy's day because Mm. the U.S. has, you know, in Kennedy's day, we had an automatic majority in the General Assembly. Uh Today, that that's that's no longer the case. There are many more countries in the United Nations, and they they don't all bow down uh, to the United States. And the world is so much more complex. The need for um, peacekeeping um, forces, the need for uh-huh. a strong world organization for the for UNICEF for for. UN agencies that uh, help the world's neediest people. We need to increase our funding, our support, rely on the UN. You know, if if the Bush administration had relied on the UN, we would not have gone into Iraq. He went to the mm. Security Council and, um, the, you know, Bush too. And when they said, uh, uh, no, uh, we're not supporting this. He went ahead anyway. Yeah. So um, it's really important to listen to other countries and to engage uh, with uh, the world in a in in a modest way, where you're realizing you don't know everything, you don't have all the answers, you're not the uh, only player. You know, we have to move away from this. Uh, mixture of multilateralism and unilateralism yeah. that was true, true even in Obama's day. I mean, it was uh, co- sometimes scholars call it a la carte multilateralism, where it's you're multilateral when it works and when it doesn't, you go back to unilateralism. Uh, of course, uh, went only to unilateralism, but it, it, that can't work anymore. We need a true progressive multilateralism where we work with others and uh, put the big big stick away forever. No, boy, well, that would be good. Modesty, you bring that up, and that's a really interesting thing. And, you know, hubris has gotten everybody who practices it into deep trouble. And, uh, you know, I wonder about modesty. Uh, Trump was obviously the total antithesis of modesty. I mean, he was so incredibly... (laughs) That's for sure. I mean, he was so incredibly insecure just and it, it drove everything he did. Did in terms of modesty, do you think was Kennedy more modest after after uh, you know a few years in office? And what what about you? What do you see in uh, Biden with regard to modesty? I think that's absolutely essential: humility and modesty. But you know, men in particular sort of oftentimes have a hard time with being modest and not being the tough macho man. What's your sense of that modesty factor? Well, I think uh, Kennedy did have a degree of modesty. I mentioned before, you know, yeah. listening, willing to listen to people. I mean, he he was forced to meet with General Curtis LeMay, and it just drove <laughs> him up the wall. He was just so insane. I really have to meet with this guy? You know, I mean, Why did he have to so, meet with him? I guess he, he, he must have been... Uh, I had a position on the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, or head of the Air Force or what, whatever it was, but he had to meet with him. That was, you know, you don't, it's, he's not a king, you know. Right, right. Uh, he, you know, there's some people who had positions, you know, you go in there and it's a system that you're the head of, but uh, there are many parts uh-huh. to it. So, uh, and I think he certainly um, was able to, to realize he didn't have 
the power to push everybody around in the world. Uh, he was really shaken by his early meeting with uh, Khrushchev and uh, you know, he made that uh, joke, which I mentioned in my piece about after the uh, um, the Bay of Pigs disaster. He said, "The worse I do, the more people like me." You know, I mean, really? he, he, you know, it's <laughs> it's uh, someone who had a background where um, he he, you know, was a, a thinker. And I, yeah. now Biden, uh, I think one of the reasons he ended up winning the nomination was basically because there was a fear within the the, the yeah. non-progressive Democrats right. that uh, uh, a Sanders presidency would be would be too radical. And you know, as a supporter of Sanders, sure. I, you know, I, I I I thought that was regrettable. On the other hand, he also projected this uh, a certain humble style uh-huh. of Biden did. So I don't know if if there's a you know, a substance to the style, but maybe if you practice a style long enough, it uh-huh. starts to, to influence your personality. So I don't, you know, <laughs> I, and I don't know him well enough to really answer that question of whether he's going to be a, a person who who's bristles and you know goes. Uh-huh. You know, Bill Clinton was famous for you know getting yelling at people and so on, or if uh, you know, or if he's going to be somebody who's going to. Uh, uh, listen and uh, take into account uh, wise counsel. That would be good. Listening is important, I'll tell you, for sure, for sure. And often, too often missing. Another often forgotten figure in history who strikes me as being ahead of his time is Henry A. Wallace. He was vice president for a while under uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and he, and he too called for working together with our World War II ally Russia and avoiding the incredibly costly and wasteful Cold War. Then there was George McGovern, with whom I traveled a bit in 1984. He used to say, and I think this is so true, we can do more to dry up the swamplands of despair which breed communism. Now you could switch that with terrorism. We can do more to dry up the swamplands of despair which breed communism with our medical, agricultural, technical, educational help than with all the military hardware in our vast arsenal. That was George McGovern. Now Biden is certainly no Henry Wallace or George McGovern, might there be more of a chance for a peace presidency going forward than there has been in a long time? And what would it look like? What would the peace advocating Kennedy of 1963 advised? And politically, can it be done? Easy questions. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, um, a lot of people um, see... Um, Wallace's failure to be renominated as vice president in '44 is a terribly sad turning point. And oh, of course, cool. yeah, Wallace did uh, run for president in '48 right. as part of the Progressive Party, but got a very small vote because he was called a, a communist. He, you know, he he's mm. somebody who served as uh, for 12 years in the Roosevelt and Truman administrations, but he was, you know called, uh, you know, he served uh, from 33 until uh, he left, I guess, in in 45, um, or 46, actually. He was fired in September 46 by Truman because he 
gave a speech advocating uh, uh, cooperation, even though the president right. had himself approved the speech. And you mentioned McGovern. McGovern had uh, supported the Progressive Party in 1948. So he was a... a an unusual figure to be nominated for president and of course um ended up being defeated by yeah. by a, lar- a large margin but you know uh John Kerry ran for president and like McGovern he had a certain uh, uh progressive background he'd been uh, a leader of sure. Vietnam against the war and Biden has appointed uh Kerry, uh, Kerry as uh, to be in charge of climate as a cabinet level position. So mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what could be done now, I think it's uh, joining with Europe immediately to provide vaccines to Africa, um, providing uh, full funding to the Green Climate Fund, uh, ex- expanding um, help to the, the impoverished nations that are on the the, the uh, cusp of, of default so yeah. that um, that they're able to um, survive. So there's a, a, something called special drawing rights at the International Monetary Fund that would, would help those nations. And getting, getting rid of those trade agreements where corporations have the right under U.S. trade agreements to complain about policies in our trading partners that are uh, hurting their bottom line. We, yeah, oh, that right. has to be gotten rid of. Yeah. Um, Can he do it politically, I wonder? Can Biden do it politically, domestically? I I, I think there's a, a well of support as the new programs, the infrastructure programs uh, come into place. The more he expands uh, domestic programs, the the greater the freedom he's going to have to take sensible initiatives in foreign policy. Every one of these initiatives are something uh, that are uh, just modest efforts all put together, you know, restoring funding to UNESCO, launching a good neighbor policy toward Latin America. President Obama started a cooperation with China over environmental policy. You know, China's right now the number one emitter and so we have to cooperate with china mm-hmm. on new, new environmental projects they're they're taking the lead in sustainability it, it's just makes common sense to join with them ending the horrible war in yemen yes. uh with you know he's already taken a step in that direction with suspending assistance to uh, saudi arabia so i think he's he's taken a few steps in the right direction he needs to pay more attention to it and make a more comprehensive shift. And of course, we really need to tackle a dramatic reduction in, in military spending. Hey, thank you and, so much for being with us today. Very, very interesting. And uh, it's always good to think with history. Let's hope we can do that. Uh, Professor Martin Halpern, the piece is on uh, History News Network. Thank you so much for being with us on uh, Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. I dreamed I was the president of these United States I dreamed I replaced ignorance, stupidity and hate I dreamed the perfect union and a perfect law undenied 
Just a ball 